This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin today, we always start off with a few moments of uh, of silent prayer, which we will uh, forego momentarily because this this, uh, morning is a little bit different. Normally, we have our communion service on the first Sunday of the month, but due to scheduling issues, we're having it today. This is the last Sunday of a five-Sunday month. Since tomorrow's the first, I don't think anybody will be too upset. Need to make sure everybody turns off their cell phones, by the way, just in case you have have forgotten. Last Sunday morning, we began a new series on Sunday morning, second hour, and that is a series on understanding the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his person and work. To understand who Jesus Christ is, you don't start in the New Testament. You start in the Old Testament. And as we go through our series, we will unpack all that the Old Testament had to say about the promised Messiah. But as part of the ritual of Israel, you had the Passover feast. And in the Jewish system, there are various feasts and fasts. And all of the ritual of Israel foreshadowed something about the person or the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I thought that it would be appropriate this morning, since we have not done this in about five years, is to look at the Jesus Christ in the Passover of Israel, because it is the Passover that is the context out of which the Lord's table developed. In the Jewish ritual system, in their religious system, they had two times of religious feasting feasts. They had the spring feasts and the fall feasts. In the spring, the most important of the feasts was the Passover. In the fall, the most important of the feasts is the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So why should we know about the Jewish Passover? Why should we understand the Jewish Passover? I want to give you four reasons. First of all, the Jewish Passover teaches about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover teaches about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is clear from the Scriptures. If you look at a passage such as 1 Corinthians 5-7, Paul, addressing a Gentile audience, a primarily Gentile audience, says, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened for indeed Christ our passover was sacrificed for us so paul identifies jesus christ with the passover john the baptist 
John the Baptist's role was to introduce Jesus Christ. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And remember, one of the primary functions of a prophet was to anoint the king. And this was the role and function of John the Baptist was to anoint the the Messiah, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. And that is the function of the baptism of Jesus Christ was parallel to the anointing of a king. So John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. He was the one who would announce the arrival of the Messiah. And among the different designations that John the Baptist applied to Jesus was one he that is used in John chapter 1. When John first saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if you were a Jew out there by the Jordan River that day, and you suddenly heard John the Baptist refer to this individual as the Lamb of God, that term, Lamb of God, was a loaded term. And what you would think of, what would come to your mind as a Jew, is the Passover lamb, and it would immediately bring to mind the Passover sacrifice. The Passover itself was a picture of the redemption of Israel. It was a picture of the redemption of Israel. They were enslaved in Egypt, and that is analogous to every human being being born in slavery to sin. The tenth plague of the ten plagues that God brought on the Egyptians to force the Pharaoh to let the Jews go was the death of the firstborn. The angel of death would come, and all of the firstborn in every family would die unless they sacrificed a lamb that was without spot or blemish, took the blood from the lamb, and applied it to the doorposts and the lintel of their, their house, And then, because the blood was applied to the door, when the angel of death came, the angel of death would pass over. Inside the house, you had the family, an extended family. They were to kill and roast a lamb. They were to eat the lamb with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread. The principle we see here is that though the lamb might be sacrificed, the blood had to be applied to the doorpost before the angel would pass over. The same is true of every single human being. Though Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has been sacrificed, his death has to be applied to each individual. They have to make a decision whether to trust in him or not, just as the Jews in ancient Egypt had to decide whether or not they would trust God, apply the blood to the doorpost, and survive that night without the loss of their firstborn. So the first reason we need to know about the Passover is because it teaches about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Second, it's a picture of redemption of Israel. Third, it explains and illustrates the Lord's table. When you, from now on, when you come to the Lord's table and you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you will have a completely new understanding of where that came from and what it means. See, as I keep teaching you over and over again, you can't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the context for the New Testament and everything that is taught in the New Testament has its root in the Old Testament. Jesus took two elements out of the Seder, that's the technical term for the Passover meal. He took two elements from the Seder and invested them with new meaning. Uh, third reason, 
to know the uh, Passover and the importance of the Passover is it will give you a tool that you can use in evangelism to Jews. Most Jews are pretty ignorant of the Old Testament and of Christianity, but most Jews are somewhat familiar with the elements at Passover and in a Passover meal. And then finally, we could say that understanding the Passover will help you understand what went on during those that night at the Last Supper. And we'll close by looking at the passages in the Gospels where Jesus celebrates the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal with the disciple. Now, there was always something that had to be done prior to Passover in preparation for Passover. And there were certain events that led up to Passover on the 10th of Nisan. Nisan was roughly comparable to our April or March, falls in the spring of the year, was the first month in the Jewish calendar. On Nisan the 10th, a lamb would be selected. This would be a lamb that was to be without spot or blemish. And that lamb would be selected on the 10th, and four days were needed for its examination to make sure that it fit the criteria to be a Paschal lamb. Then on the 14th, which is the day of Passover, the lamb, the, the Paschal lambs were slain in the temple precincts between 9 in the morning and 3 in the afternoon. And, of course, that typology, typology means a foreshadowing or an example. That typology was perfectly fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. The day that he entered Jerusalem was on the 10th of Nisan. The king was presented to the people. Then you have four days of examination, and then it is on the 14th, at the exact same time that the high priest was sacrificing the Passover lamb in the temple, Jesus Christ was being nailed to the cross where he was fulfilling the picture portrayed by that Passover lamb. Now, two things would happen in a typical Jewish household at any time at Passover, because Passover is also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and what has to take place is cleansing. And this is an important principle that is demonstrated through two things that happen at the beginning of Passover. First, there's preparation. Spring cleaning would usually take place a week or two weeks prior to Passover. Uh, the family goes through and cleans the house from attic to basement. And their purpose is to find and discover all leaven that is in the house and to remove it. And leaven, as we know from Scripture, is a picture, a type of sin, because it permeates everything. So the cleansing of the leaven from the house signified the necessity of removal of sin before man can have a relationship with God. On the day of preparation... The day before uh, they, they eat the Passover meal, remember the, day, the Passover begins at sundown in the evening, so on the day of preparation, leavened bread is scattered in ten corners throughout the house. And then the father makes a show of taking the children, and he has a wooden spoon and a feather, and they go to each of these places and they uh, scoop up the and sweep up the, the leavened bread, onto a spoon, and then they deposit it in a linen bag. When they have collected all of the leaven in the house, they put the spoon and the feather in the bag, and then they uh, burn everything so that all of the leaven is destroyed. The picture here is the same picture that we have in 1 Corinthians 5-7, that we're to purge out 
the old leaven. This is a picture of cleansing of sin, not for the unbeliever in salvation, but the cleansing on the part of the believer prior to participation in the ritual. And it's important to notice that in this in this imagery, God would not even let the symbol of sin be in the house. Now, the second thing that takes place in regard to uh, cleansing prior to uh, the Passover, which applies also to cleansing prior to celebrating the Lord's table, is foot washing. As guests and family members would enter into the house to celebrate Passover, there would be a servant or a slave at the front door with a basin of water whose job was to wash their feet. This was the task of the lowest class of people. And yet on the night that our Lord celebrated the Last Supper, the Passover meal with his disciples, it was our Lord who, as the pater familius, the head of the family, he took the place of the servant at the door, symbolizing what he had taught in Mark 10:45 that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He washed the feet of the disciples and used that to emphasize and to teach that the believer needs to have ongoing confession of sin and cleansing in his life. He may be washed from head to toe and cleansed from all sin, forgiven of sin, positionally at the point of salvation, but we still sin after salvation. We don't lose our salvation, but every time we sin, it affects our relationship with God. It erects uh, uh, breaking a fellowship, uh, breaking a fellowship barrier between man and God, and there needs to be cleansing. That's the point of First John one nine. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, Paul warned the Corinthians that they were abusing the Lord's table, and part of their problem was they were coming from an arrogant, sinful perspective. They were coming to the Lord's table simply to eat well and to get drunk. And so Paul warned them that there were many among them suffering from divine discipline. They were sick. Some had died as a result of the the sin unto death because they were abusing the Lord's table. So Paul said, let every man examine himself. And this establishes the principle that before participation in the Lord's table, we are to make sure that we are in fellowship. The most important issue is that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's table is a memorial ritual to reflect upon what Jesus Christ did for you in salvation. If you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's just an empty ritual. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it is a reminder of everything that God has done for us in saving us. It is a picture of grace, and in the two elements of the Lord's table, the unleavened bread and the cup, it pictures the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we go any further in our uh, celebration of the Lord's Table this morning and our demonstration of Passover, I want us to make sure that we are in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, simply a matter of silent prayer and admitting to God any sins that you remember. You can admit to God in the privacy of your priesthood, and you are confident that at the instant, at that instant, you are cleansed and forgiven of all sin. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning to fellowship around the Lord's table, to focus on the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was impeccable without sin, born, conceived and born of a virgin. He did not inherit Adam's original sin. He did not have a sin nature, and there was no imputation of Adam's original sin, So, and there was no personal sin. So he was without sin, therefore fully qualified to go to the cross on our behalf, fully qualified to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sin. Father, we are also reminded in the Lord's table of his work. The cup speaks of the sacrifice on the cross, that during those three hours between 12 noon and 3 p.m. when there was darkness over the face of the earth, there was the time when you imputed to him all the sins of mankind. So the sin penalty was paid for. Now, Father, as we remember this, as we reflect upon the Old Testament background to the Lord's table, the foreshadowing, the typology of the Old Testament, we pray that you would drive home to us what a precise God you are and how salvation is not some random event, that some afterthought, but something that was planned for, prepared for throughout the ages, and how clear it is that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the promised Messiah, the one who was to bear the sin of the world, the one who bore the sin of the world, and the one who will return again to receive us to himself and to establish his kingdom. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. The Passover meal would begin in a family. The first thing that happens would be that the mother would light the candles. In Judaism, there's not, and in the Old Testament ritual, there's little for a woman to do. All of the the Levites were males, all the priests were males, prophets were males. But in the Passover meal, as the ritual developed, and not all of this is in the in the Old Testament. If you look at Exodus, all you have is the eating of the lamb with the bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And over the years, certain things were added to the Passover. What's interesting is that all of the elements that were added are perfect portrayals of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the Passover meal, the woman of the house will light the candles. This is a picture of the mother of Christ, the Virgin Mary, who would be the one who would bring the light into the world. Perfect demonstration of the promise to Eve in Genesis 3.15 that it was the seed of the woman that would be the, the Messiah. After the Lighting of the candles, usually the head of the house would then stand up, the oldest male around. He would stand up and he would wear, he wears two items, which I have here. See if I can do this. This is a kittle. And he would put on it, have on a, this robe. And he also would put on some sort of hat, because in Jewish worship, you never worship God with the head uncovered. And depending on whether you are what group or whether you're Orthodox or 
Hasidic depends on what kind of hat you put on. So I'll put on a, this is called a kipper. It's a head covering from the same root as kafar, which is the word for atonement, for covering. So the head of the house would stand up, and before you begin to eat anything, you take the kids out. Before the family would begin to eat, usually they would begin with four questions, and the oldest child would stand up and he would ask these questions in Hebrew. And he would begin by asking the summary question, why is this night different from all other nights? Then he would ask, on all other nights, we eat leavened, we eat either leavened or unleavened bread. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? An unleavened bread is a flat bread. It has no yeast in it, no leaven. I understand there's a difference between leaven and yeast. But the bread was not made with leaven. It was made in a hurry. So there was not time on that original Passover to allow the dough to rise. The reason it is flat is because, according to the Jewish legend, they were in such a hurry to get out of Egypt once the Pharaoh said they could go that they took the dough and they put it on their backs, and as they walked out of town, it flattened out on their backs. Now, for, leaven, for unleavened bread to be qualified, for the bread to be qualified for Passover, there are three things necessary. First, it has to be unleavened. Leaven represents sin in the Scripture, and ultimately the bread is going to portray the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the bread is without leaven, indicating the sinlessness of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that you notice about the bread is that it is striped. It has these brown striped patterns on here, and this is a reminder of what Isaiah 50, Isaiah says in the 53rd chapter related, uh, relating the, to the Messiah, by his stripes we are healed. The third thing that you have to have in the unleavened bread is holes, and you can see the light behind the holes, and the holes portray the fact that he would be pierced. Zechariah 12.10 states that, uh, they will look upon those whom they have pierced. Isaiah 53 also states that he would be, the Messiah would be pierced. So you have, uh, unleavened bread. Second question, child would ask is on all other nights we eat all kinds of herbs. Why on this night do we eat only bitter herbs? And they would eat bitter herbs on this night because it was a reminder of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. Third question he would ask is, on all other nights, we do not even dip once. Why on this night do we dip twice? And during the course of the Passover meal, there's uh, two times when you will dip. The first is the time that you will take the parsley and dip the parsley into uh, a bowl of salt water. The parsley, the green parsley, speaks of new life. And the salt water is a reminder of their salvation as they went through the salt water of the Red Sea. The second dip is when you'll take a piece of the matzah, which we'll get to later. You'll get, take a, some of the matzah and dip it in the uh, mixture here called karoseth, which is a mixture of apples and honey and nuts and lemon juice and a little bit of wine. And you dip that in into that apple mixture with a little horseradish, 
wonderful flavor there, and eat that. And those two different dippings are both both portrayed in the Last Supper account as you compare the different gospel accounts together. You see the two different dippings that take place, and we'll look at those before we're done. And then the fourth question that's asked is, on all other nights, we eat either sitting or reclining. Why on this night do we only recline? And so the position at dinner is to recline, and that is because in slavery, a slave could only stand. He was always at the under the command of his owner and had to be ready to go and leave and work and do whatever the owner wanted him to do at any point in time. And on the night, the original night of Passover, they ate standing because they had to be ready to leave. But now that they are free, they eat reclining. So it is a picture of their present status of freedom. Now, the other thing that you will have in a typical Passover meal is there is a a platter. It's decorated all kinds of different ways, and there are six indentations or six bowls in that platter. I don't have one of those to show you. And in those six six uh, indentations or six bowls, there are different uh, different ingredients, each of which has important significance, which I want to explain. The first is the karoseth, which is this apple, nut, uh, honey mixture, and that is, it turns brown, you would make it 24 hours ahead of time, and that is to to have the general appearance of the mortar that they use with the bricks, and was a reminder of their uh, service, their slavery in Egypt when they made bricks, and then later they had to make bricks without mortar. The second uh, part, the second element that you have is a green parsley. And the green parsley was a picture of springtime and a picture of new life. And you would take the parsley, dip it in the salt water. The salt water was a reminder of the Red Sea. And so it's a picture of the fact that the nation was born, given new life when they were delivered through the Red Sea. The Red Sea. The third element is the maror, which is the bitter herbs. And here you have onions, some, sometimes they use other herbs, and horseradish together. And that is a reminder of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. They take the horseradish and eat the horseradish straight, and it would bring tears to their eyes in order to remind them of their bitterness uh, of, of the slavery. Then you have a roasted egg. The roasted egg was not utilized at the time of Christ. This was added later on, and it, uh, you know, different different people give different interpretations to it. But there are uh, many Christians who believe that the purpose of the egg was once again to indicate the new life that comes from Christ. And then, of course, at the time of Christ, they ate the Passover lamb for the Passover meal. And since there's no more temple, no more sacrifice, what the uh, Jews d- developed in rabbinical Judaism, which is the post-temple Judaism, is they would have the shank bone of a lamb uh, there to remind them of the of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. The uh, hard-boiled egg or the roasted egg was also... Uh, a, a reminder of the first sacrifice of Passover the next morning, a Passover that was only for, only for the priests. Now, the central part of the, of the Passover 
ceremony itself involves the matzah. And here I have a special bag called a matzatash. And the matzah would be placed in the matzatash. And if you look at the mas- this matzatash, it has three compartments. Now, what's interesting about rabbinical Judaism is, and you have a piece of matzah in each one of these compartments. In rabbinical Judaism, there's an attempt to explain every detail, every minutia of every single ritual. Yet, when you come to the ritual of the matzatash and what we'll see in a minute, the afikoman bag, there's no explanation. They have an explanation and reason for why you do everything else, but there's no explanation for the ritual with the, the, the matzotash. There's no explanation of why there are three compartments in the matzotash. There's no explanation of why you do what you do with the afikoman. There's simply the ritual itself, and yet once a Jew becomes a believer, you immediately see the significance of the matzotash. Because the matzah bag is divided into three compartments, and each compartment represents the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it is only from the middle compartment that the bread is taken. And towards the beginning of the meal, the bread from only the middle compartment is taken, and it is broken in half. And it was at this point that the Lord Jesus Christ would have said, this is my body which is given as a substitute for you. And half of the bread is taken, and it is placed inside of a linen bag called an afikomen bag. And the afikomen is a a German word uh, that means that which... That which remains. And you take the half of the bread that was broken, place it in the afikoman, and usually you'd give it to some child in the family, and he would take it and he would hide it. It would go someplace out of sight, and it would be hidden for the course of the meal. And then you would sit down, and the next thing that would take place as you began was you would have two glasses of wine. There are actually four glasses of wine during the course of the during the course of the meal. The first cup is called the cup of thanksgiving and blessing. Sometimes it's called the cup of sanctification, the kedush, and it symbolizes joy. All wine, for in, in uh, Jewish thought, symbolizes joy, inner happiness, uh, the com- uh, contentment and tranquility that only God can provide. So to begin the meal, they have their first cup. There is a special blessing, a special prayer that goes with the cup of thanksgiving, and this begins the meal. The head of the household will pray, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam bareperi hagafen. Blessed are you, O Lord God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. Then they come to the second cup. And the second cup is the cup of plagues. Now, wine is a symbol of joy. And in Jewish thought, in Old Testament thought, you can't be happy at the expense of somebody else's sorrow, somebody else's suffering. So before you would drink of the second cup, it's a reminder of the of the plagues that God brought on the Egyptians. And so they take and they spill out ten drops, one for each of the ten plagues. And then 
they drink that cup. Then they eat the meal. Now today, in any Jewish household, they don't have lamb. Guess what they have? Chicken. And this is a picture of how in rabbinical Judaism they have substituted false religion for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They have they go through the meal. During the meal they talk, they laugh, they catch up on what's been going on during the year. It's a wonderful family time. And then when they finish the meal, they come to the next segment of the ritual. And that is when the afikoman is brought out. And the afikoman is retrieved. That was the bread that was broken earlier, the bread that Jesus said, this is my body which is given for you. The afikoman is brought out, and that piece is then broken. And this is when the Lord would have taken the unleavened bread and passed it out to his disciples, and they would eat. And this takes place in conjunction with, and is followed by the third cup of wine, which is called the cup of redemption. And this is the cup that the Lord spoke of when he said, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is given as a substitute for you. Having drunk the wine, the third cup of wine, then they drink the last and final cup of wine, which is a cup of praise, at which time they conclude the evening. It's been a time of joy. It's been a time of sadness. It's been a time of reminiscent reminiscences. It usually goes on for four or five hours, and yet I didn't have it the place set fully here. There's a fifth glass and a different looking glass of wine here, and usually there will be a full place setting and a chair set at the other end of the table, and this is called the Elijah cup. It is the place for Elijah, and the expectation in uh, Judaism was that the, the Messiah would be preceded by Elijah. Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says that, Al, that Elijah will come and announce the Messiah. So in Judaism, the idea came up that the that Elijah would appear on the first day of Passover to announce the coming of the Messiah. And at this point, the Passover meal is just about concluded, and Elijah has not shown up yet. So the youngest child is usually sent out to look outside the front door up and down the street to see if Elijah is coming. And if he doesn't see Elijah coming, then he comes back in the house and say, well, he's not here this year. And then the father closes with a somewhat bittersweet announcement Sorrow that the, once again the Messiah has not come, and he says next year in Jerusalem, hoping that in the next year they'll all be back in Jerusalem and the Messiah will come. Now let's, before we go any further, I want to look at the passages in the Gospels where we see the Lord celebrating the Last Supper with The disciples. Let's look first of all at Matthew. Matthew 26:20. We're told when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Surely I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Nobody's got a clue as to who's going to betray him. 
And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Now, this is a fairly large setup. You've got a large table. You've got 13 people. They're all reclining. Jesus is at the head of the table. So if I were at the head of the table and it stretched out in this direction, then if I were in the Lord's position, then the person on my right would be Peter. I mean, not Peter, uh, uh, John. John was reclined in such a way that his head was near the Lord, and the Lord would be lying on his right side. On the Lord's left was Judas Iscariot. The reason we say that because of what takes place in these passages. So he began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered, he who dipped, and it's an aorist tense verb indicating it had already taken place. He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. So on a table like this, you would have several uh bowls with the salt water in them, and they had already come to that first part of the meal where they had dipped the parsley, and Jesus and Judas had both dipped their parsley into the same bowl of salt water. But the disciples weren't paying too much attention. They didn't know who it was who had dipped in the same bowl with the Lord. So this was the first dipping. Jesus said, he who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Then in verse 24, the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you've said it. Now, you got 13 guys in the room. But because of the way they're, they're, they're positioned, Judas is on his right side toward the Lord, and he says this, and the others do not hear him. Just like if you're at a dinner party and there's 12 or 13 people around the table, you can have a conversation with the person next to you that nobody else hears. So this is a private conversation between Judas and the Lord in the middle of the dinner. Then we go to our passage in John chapter 13. John 13 describes the many elements of that evening that are not listed in the other or that are not relayed in the other Gospels. Now, in the course of the meal, John 13:24, Peter, who's sitting further down the table over there, see, Peter's not going to shout across the table his question to the Lord, so he motions to John. John's right next to the Lord. So Peter motions to John and, and says, who did he say it was going to be? Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, see, this is John next to the Lord, and so he leans over close. This isn't this kind of silly picture you see in in uh, uh, Da Vinci's The Last Supper where John's got his head on Jesus' chest. He's just leaning over to talk to him, and he said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give. Notice future tense. It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And so what Jesus did at this point was he took the unleavened bread and he would take some of the karoseth and then dip it into, and I just broke it off, dip it into the horseradish mixture and then he would hand that he would have handed that to Judas Iscariot, and that was a sign that Judas was the one who, one who would betray him. 
Now, we've looked at the Matthew passage, we've looked at the John passage, notice how each one gives a little different detail, and then we go to the Luke passage, Luke 22:14. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he clearly states that this was a Passover meal. Verse 16, for I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, the important thing to notice there is that there are elements of this that are not just fulfilled in Christ's work on the cross, but have a future reference. Just as the Passover meal in the Old Testament looked back to the deliverance of the Jews from Egypt in 1446 B.C., and also looked forward to Christ, the Lord's table that we celebrate not only looks back to the crucifixion of Christ on the cross, but it also anticipates his coming in his kingdom. So Jesus says, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Verse 17, then he took the cup and gave thanks. This is the third cup. Um, no, this, in verse 17, this is not the first, the, 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 third cup. This is the first cup because this is the only cup that has a special blessing of thanksgiving with it. He took the cup, gave thanks, said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then verse 19, there, there's some time goes by. Verse 19 is when he takes the bread at the beginning, the, takes the uh, bread and pl- from the, the middle pocket in the matzotash, he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. Now, at the end of the ceremony, when you have the afikoman brought out, that is a picture of the death, burial, and the Lord Jesus, uh, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, for he who was wounded for our transgressions, he who was whipped And he who was without sin died. His body was wrapped in linen, and it went into the grave for three days and three nights, and then he rose from the dead. And so the afikoman is a picture of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus uses the bread, gives it new meaning. This is my body, which which is given as a substitute for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then in verse 20, likewise, he also took the cup after supper. See, there were the four cups, the first two. So that first cup was the cup of thanksgiving. And then the last two are taken after dinner. So this is that third cup, the first one after dinner, the cup of redemption. And Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So this is the background for understanding the Passover, I mean, the Lord's table. So understand that each of these elements, as we celebrate the Lord's table, has a rich history going back to the uh, original Passover and to the deliverance of the Jews from slavery in Egypt. Both elements, therefore, picture God's plan of salvation as he has delivered us from slavery to sin. Everyone is born a slave to sin. 
Everyone is born under the condemnation of sin. And the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is eternal condemnation. Not because of your personal sin, but because of Adam's original sin, because all the entire human race fell in Adam's sin. Therefore, in God's perfect design, because one man's condemnation is the basis for the condemnation of the race, one man's acceptance is the foundation for the salvation of the race. But just like the Old, the Old Testament picture of the lamb, that the blood had to be applied, you can't just get into heaven because Jesus died on the cross. There has to be a personal acceptance of that death. There has to be a recognition that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a payment for your sins. And salvation is that simple. It's not based on ritual. It's not based on making a bargain with God. It's not based on improving yourself. It's not based on morality. It's based on simply trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. Now, it is our custom when we celebrate the Lord's table normally to begin with a silent prayer at this point, but we've already done that. And so I'm going to ask the deacons who are going to uh, serve the elements of the Lord's table to please come forward and prepare for serving the Lord's table. I'm going to ask Dave Tongren if he would please return thanks for the bread. It's our custom for everyone to retain the bread until all have been served. Having broken the bread, Jesus passed it out to his disciples. And he said, this is my body which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. I'll return thanks for the cup. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then took the third cup, which is the cup of redemption, said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given as a substitute for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let's all stand together and we'll sing hymn number 258, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.